0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Equity Residential President and CEO, Mark Perel. Mark addresses the current challenges facing multifamily real estate, from pandemic-related migration trends to affordable housing. He also touches on the company's forward-looking technology strategy, its approach to attracting Gen Z tenants, and how it has navigated leasing throughout COVID-19. Enjoy the conversation Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining. Where are you zooming in from today?
1: I'm in suburban, lovely suburban Chicago. How about you?
0: I'm in New York, uh, which is obviously quite a change. You've probably seen me out in Park City.
1: Yeah, that was a nicer backdrop, but I'm sure it's very nice in New York, too.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on. Um, Would you mind just giving people a quick background on EQR and the history of the company?
1: Sure, absolutely. So when the company went public in the mid 90s we advertised marketed ourselves as the mutual fund of apartments we were going to be everywhere we were going to give you a return of a little bit more than inflation which remember we used to have inflation in the 90s so that was a a good return and we were trying to build scale we were trying to get big so that we could access the capital markets the investment grade rated getting the s p 500 and get operating scale so that we could operate more cheaply. And that was really the couple of things we were really working on. So we were a huge consolidator in the industry. We bought and bought and rolled up a lot of other companies. And then as you get into the early 2000s, the differentiation in our thinking that began was, we started to see that not all apartment buildings, not all markets really were, were the same. That there were markets and they usually had affluent, you know, usually had common aspects, relatively affluent renter base often knowledge workers, lawyers, doctors, technology people, um, pretty high single family housing costs. So that our main competitor back then was people moving into single family homes. It wasn't other apartments. Um, Third, relatively hard to build. So it's hard to build apartments because of zoning or because it wasn't a lot of space in the Bay Area or because it was expensive in New York. So, you know, sort of barriers to entry, you know, a little bit of a moat around the business and then places where demand we thought would be good. And we would, sum it all up by saying it's where an affluent renter wants to live, work, and play. And those markets for us were Boston, the New York area, uh, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, uh, Bay Area, Los Angeles, and the rest of Southern California and Seattle. We also have a presence in Denver. So those characteristics are pretty common in all those markets. And so that's how we started to evolve. So at our largest, Brendan, we were 220,000 units. Now we're 80,000 and we're more valuable, but we're much more concentrated. Those units we owned in places like Michigan and Ohio, we sold that whole concentration and became sort of focused. And the company right now is 55% urban and 45% suburban. So we have a pretty big suburban presence. So it'll be fun in this conversation to talk a little bit about uh, the difference between you know how the urban experience has been and and the suburban, because they're very different. The suburban has been relatively unaffected and the urban obviously much more so and I know we'll we'll talk about that in a minute.
0: Would you say that there's been just an asymmetric impact in terms of the pandemic and the dislocations that it's caused on the coast versus in the interior of the U.S.?
1: Well you know some of my interior knowledge is less firsthand because besides Denver, which we only own five properties in Denver, I don't have as much except listening to the industry. I would say I'd split the country into three pieces. The city of San Francisco, Manhattan, Brooklyn, maybe all of New York City, um, Boston, Cambridge. Those areas are very challenged. Those are places where the quality of life really went down. They were very high density locations to begin with. People, you know, really the occupancy there is in the high 80s, low 90s, very concessionary environment, you know, just different. Then there's the other urban locations and Washington DC is a good example. The buildings in DC don't tend to be as tall as New York. It still is a pretty, can be in spots very dense. And that market's held in there for us. Part of that's the government backdrop, but also even our urban sites have done okay. They have not, it hasn't been a step function down. It's been a more gradual down. And then our suburban locations, which by and large have held in there. Um, In Southern California, our rents are actually higher than they were a year ago this time. Places like Seattle, they're down, but not much. So some of these suburbs for us have really hung in there. Um, Our private and public competitors that have only Sunbelt suburban portfolios have done better in the last few months than we have, just like we did a lot better for most of the 2010s through, you know, 2016, 17 period. So there is a cycle, but right now it's definitely cycling against the urban, especially those big three urban centers, I would say.
0: And, and I'd, I'd be curious to get your perspective on just like COVID at a macro level. And maybe we can like go from uh, a very myopic view to a very grand view, kind of zooming in from like, what was EQR response? Um, what do you think the impact is on multifamily and, and rentals generally? And then I'd love to get your thoughts on cities. But first, maybe what was the initial reaction when, when COVID happened for EQR?
1: I mean, just the team, we were shocked, I'm sure. Right. Really, everyone who says otherwise probably, unless they were at the CDC, probably is is not 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 prepared. So we we saw that we were shocked, we were, we were surprised, and the whole outcome was, of course, uh, much worse than any of us I think could have imagined. Um, I think the thing I heard said about the pan- <clears throat> pardon me the pandemic that was the most wise is it accelerated the rate of change of things that were already going on. Mm-hmm. So we've seen all of us, <clears throat> pardon me. The, the pressure retail was on. There's just a lot of pressure on shopping centers and retail. And Amazon, and we, that was all known and we felt it, but it was felt like that was going to be a gradual decline. And then it wasn't anymore. It was accelerated. I think the cities were under some pressure already. There was some diffusion of these knowledge workers across more markets. I think the cost of places like San Francisco had gotten quite high. The rental And just the general living expenses in the city. And maybe the quality of life wasn't all that people had hoped it was. And you had seen a little bit of a dispersion, but you still felt really good about what you owned in those markets. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you had this sort of COVID thing, accelerate this move out. But I will tell you, we've spent a lot of time talking. uh, The people that are closest to our residents, our concierges, our doormen, people like that. And our folks that have left us in New York, they always say, we want to come back. When New York's worth coming back to, we want to come back. When we look at where our residents moved to, because we see their forwarding addresses, they moved to suburban New Jersey. They haven't moved to Vermont. So again, remembering our resident is 35 years, 33, 34, 35 years old, late 20s, making a good living. They liked living in the city because of the entertainment value of it, not just close to the job. They live there because they like the lifestyle. Right. We're of the opinion when the lifestyle returns, Brendan, the people will return. When it's worth living in New York, people will. When it's worth living in Boston, so we think we're a, a sort of when not if story uh, in the urban apartment world. Whereas these cities improve, public health emergency dissipates. Some good news with J.P. Morgan, right? Asking, from my point of view, asking or telling their you know traders and some other other employees to come in. We hear that a lot. I don't know. We feel, and you and I had a little conversation about this preceding this, but. We feel like at EQR, you do lose the culture when you're not together. Yeah, it doesn't mean remote work isn't going to be a permanent part of our world at Equity, but I, I think not being with the team, we now we have small groups of people, and I'm part of that, that sort of 10% that go into the office. I love those days I go in. I can get so much more done face-to-face, eight feet away from you than I could no matter how long the Zoom, because we can feel each other a little bit more, especially when you have new hires. Or when you're doing transformational change. Yeah. So I'll sort of stop there. So I feel like COVID just was an accelerant to everything that was happening already. The prevalence of technology that you know you represent is just accelerated. You know, it's just it's everywhere now.
0: It feels like that across so many sectors. And it's interesting even thinking about the distinction between like retail, right? Which which really is being disrupted. Like the actual concept of retail real estate is being disrupted. But no one's ever figured out how to disrupt a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is a very hard thing to disrupt. And so the, there seems to be like a durability to multifamily that's always there. And one of the questions I have is it feels like COVID has almost thrust more into our home and our living space than people ever imagined. And so the importance of it, the primacy of, of your home in your life, it's now your gym, it's your, your school. It's your office, mul- multiple offices even. It is kind of everything. Have you seen that at all in how people are thinking about the the kind of apartments they want as as distinct from just like eight months ago?
1: Yeah, and not only our prospects, but us. I mean, I'll give you an example. We we generally have pretty good to very good because we spend a lot of money and time on it. Internet in our common areas, mm-hmm. as well as internet, you get it in your unit, right? We try and make sure you get a phone signal. We, we actually look for that when we're buying new apartment buildings. and When we develop, we think about that as we put the materials together. But we never worried about connectivity in the hallways and everywhere else. That wasn't a big thing for us. So property-wide Wi-Fi. So if you're a resident, you wanna be connected now all the time, technology is even more ubiquitous. So the idea that we get that and we're able also, by the way, then to light up the building and do, you know, the internet of things is much more effective when it's across the whole building. You can balance your air conditioning load, you can do all these things, you can open doors. So one of the things Brendan and I'd say is our residents become much more demanding about technology. They want it to make their life better. We want them to come, so we need to do that. We also wanna make our, our processes more efficient. And so to your point, internet everywhere in a building is a prerequisite and we're having a lot of conversations about for us it's fairly expensive to retrofit a building building a building already is one thing from the ground up but an existing building especially some of our towers you know they're pretty thick i mean they had rebar and concrete and you just, right. just put wire in there it's a little bit of effort and money so i think you're going to see us in a matter of a few years light up almost every building so that we can both provide what I think our resident demands and also start to use things like, you know, if you were a maintenance person in our property and I was downstairs, I mean, the ability for us to easily communicate, for me to bring something to you, for me to remotely unlock the door of a resident we know is not home so you can tend to a maintenance request. All those, that depends on, you know, the internet being more widespread in our built environment and it's it's more selective. It's like it's in your unit, and it's in the common area and we need to take care of the in-between. And I think you're going to see a big push by us and others to light the whole building up.
0: And and this actually kind of draws in something we were actually talking about before we started recording, just the advantage that being big and being institutional confers in the real estate industry. It, it almost feels like real estate as an industry has institutionalized and has been concentrated in major institutionally operated, institutionally owned players. And now with tech colliding with it you need to have free capital to experiment and to try out things and EQR has had such a forward posture on tech and innovation and that obviously is probably paying huge dividends for you right now because again this this COVID crisis has kind of accelerated trends that were already afoot. I'm curious how you've seen that play out and in particular about leasing like how is leasing activity different and how is tech changing that today and What's the advantage that that you're seeing from some of your early investments in tech?
1: Yeah. So it's really great to to be part of that partnership because we get a lot of ideas. It's not just the capital, as you know, that attracts us. So, leasing, we had a program we had talked about on our earnings calls of going to a mostly remote leasing model by the end of 2020. That's what we said we would do to our board. We had that. Michael Manellis, our very capable chief operating officer, and his team were rolling that out in February and we were very proud to have rolled it out to 30 buildings out of 300 and we were making progress. Well then of course COVID came and in the matter of two weeks in late March and early April we became completely remote leasing and pretty soon by you know May when the pandemic when people were less afraid to even leave their homes we were leasing more meaning we were signing more leases than we were per week than we were before the same week the prior year. So we were clearly able of necessity to do something but we still wouldn't have been able to do that without technology the ability to communicate
0: baseline almost yeah
1: for our system to be able to route phone calls that people made or email inquiries to be able to do all that okay brendan has has checked in he's interested in one of our properties in brooklyn and then i know that and you've told me your interests and then i can show you the unit and by the way we've got you know matterport whoever has gone around and video the unit so you can get a feel for it and maybe you're going to ask me to go and we'll get on the phone and I'll actually show you the unit in person. We did a lot of that where people didn't want to go themselves, but they wanted someone to say, you know, how deep is the closet? Put your hand in there, you know, and right. we did a little bit of that and and our teams to their credit did a great job and it really turned out well. And so the first time we'd meet you in person, you'd come to the property, show us your ID, verify your identity. We'd hand you the keys in a packet kind of over here. We'd never sort of touch each other and You'd go up and move your stuff, your movers, or you would, and and you'd be a resident. So it was, and we replicated this process thousands of times, and this was from nearly a cold stop in terms of what we thought we could do mentally, but you're right. We had all the technology to do it, and then we all suddenly harnessed the will, and the team blew it away, and we're never going back. I mean, we're never going to be mostly in-person leasing will be then, some of gone, Has
0: it but, been more efficient? Have you actually noticed that just on a cost basis and a time base, it's more efficient, what you're doing now?
1: Well, there's sort of three flavors of, of leasing. There's the sort of in-person tour where I walk you around as the leasing consultant. There's the self-guided tour where you show up at the property, you've pre-registered, you give me your ID, I give you a key and a map and you go see just this specific unit, the amenities and you come back and then there's just the totally remote, completely tech enabled experience. The middle one actually is the cheapest for us. It uses the least amount of our time of our personnel. So obviously if you come visit and I walk you around, that's the most time invasive. Even on the internet leasing side, there is some desire to go and see the unit even remotely. And so until Brendan, we get every single aspect of every single unit. Remember we have 80,000 of them videoed. We won't get all the efficiency out of that third option. Because again, you may say, I want to see the closet. We didn't video the darn closet. So I need to run up there and take a picture. And so it's slightly less, but it's still great. It's much better than the in-person flavor.
0: It's so amazing to think about something that that is like so physical, leasing your apartment, where you live, as being able to be sourced, executed, even just, you know, your move-in day, you're not interacting with with people. I mean, that's that's such a big change when you think about where the real estate industry was, five six years ago um and i'm sure there's so much to that like where that goes from here because probably all these insights are now apparent to eqr about how could we cut more time and more cost out of that or
1: you know not everything's going to work but to your point our scale allows us to experiment with a few buildings and a few staffs and it doesn't work and then you stop or it works and then you scale it across 300. i mean that's the power of the platform right i mean you can try it at three properties it works, then you do 300. If you didn't work, you didn't break anything. Right. And you can kind of go over and try the next thing. So if you dream about the leasing process in the future, and we've got a couple of terrific people in that area that just when they talk, their eyes light up um, about it. And, you know, you think about if we could have a system where, and again, I'll use Manhattan as an example, we have four properties, say, that are pretty close to each other, easy walking distance. And say, I'm a go-getter leasing consultant, which means I'm paid on commission. All our Folks are paid on commission, that's where they get a lot or most of their comp. Well, maybe the property I'm covering is pretty well occupied and the Wallace family walks in and wants the two bedroom and I don't have one to sell. Well, I'll refer you to another one of my properties, but I don't go with you. How about if you signed up for one of these buildings and I went wherever you were? On my phone, it told me I've the Smiths at 8 a.m., I've got Wallace at 10 a.m. at different buildings. And the whole day i was busy i was engaged the entire day doing what i love to do which is sell and having a better opportunity to make more money and by the way these will be the best sales people right because it'll self-select so you get that high degree of professionalism you probably have fewer salespeople, but they're better and from your point of view you're getting the best of the best they know the whole platform the whole portfolio so I think you could end up in a way where technology has lowered our costs, the customer's happier, and the remaining employees are actually making more money and are happier with their jobs. Yeah. As to, I mean, how wasteful it is if you're a leasing person sitting there doing nothing and not earning your commission. Right. You know, you're 98% occupied. You have no, no inventory to sell. Um, or you're tied up on one thing or another. So we're we're excited about that. That and that's tech. That's tech enabled. It has to be. That phone has to be the center of the universe, and our back office has to support that. And and we're working hard on that right now.
0: That's really exciting. And I I, I have to ask you because I I know we were talking about this before, and I imagine it's a big question on everyone's mind, which is like, what happens to cities? Right? It's kind of the the macro question. What happens to cities? It's kind of probably a little too blunt to ask, but what happens to cities? What do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah well, we talked, you're a city, city kid as well. I, I grew up in the Detroit area, so I'm used to being in urban areas, been in Chicago almost my whole life now. Um, what I'd say is, you know, we said this on the earnings call that the obituary of cities has been written way too early. I mean, people, it's very hard for all of us to imagine something changing when it's bad that it's gonna get good or when it's good it's gonna get bad. Um, you know, New York went through 9-11, I remember that. Um, that was such an incredible shock. I would say um, more concentrated, but bigger than even the pandemic. Which the pandemic was though much wider spread, um, and yet the next twenty years, the city was had a higher population in 2016 than it did in 2001. And as you know, those were probably two of the best decades in terms of reurbanizing and the quality of life in the city across almost all the boroughs. So it was a real terrific couple of decades. So. When I think of uh, a New York or a Boston, these are cities that have gone through a lot, and they'll come back again. It does require good public policy, and we need to be really focused and thoughtful, and EQR has become much more engaged with policymakers, because, you know, New York's at a point, Boston's at a point, in San Francisco, where there's legitimate quality of life concerns as well that are implicated. So I would tell you, I'm encouraged about the cities, not just because they always have come back, but Boy, the network benefits. If you're a brand new lawyer and you're interested in, you know, high level contract M&A work, I mean, you, you want to go to New York. I mean, that's where the jobs are, the people are. And if you're a tech entrepreneur, I mean, you, you didn't go to Park City when you started your career. You, I right. assume you moved to LA or San Francisco, right?
0: And I moved to New York, like, like everyone. Out of my yeah, school. It was, so they're,
1: they're, they're magnets. They're magnets for talent. And that network effect that so much has been written about is super powerful. Yeah. you know, your career. And I still think, again, if you were putting another company or fund together, you know, yeah, you can call people. But if you wanted to meet the talent, you're really starting from scratch. There's more of that talent in places like Seattle and San Francisco than just showing up in Reno and trying to phone a friend, you know, from there. So I believe in the cities for those reasons. But I do think these quality of life issues need to be addressed. People got to feel safe and comfortable. These important issues of equality have to be dealt with. But no one wants the city unsafe. You know that's not, that's not anyone's best interest.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it feels when you, when you were saying people want to be in places where they can build a physical network, like that's, that's human nature. And it, it's almost like a, a, a proof point of that, although not cities, is what's happening with colleges, right? There's so much talk right now about online education and so many universities have shifted to online only. But so many of the students have elected to still go to the dorms and be in the dorms because the experience of a college, just like the experience of living in a city, is not just about the learning or not just about the computer screen you sit in front of. It's everything around that. And do you think just as you look at the landscape of cities, um, I'm curious, like a city like New York, um, you know, the, the cultural hub of the United States and a city like Chicago, right, and and Los Angeles. How do you think that contrasts with some of the more, you know, very industry focused, knowledge worker focused cities like like San Francisco, which comes to mind to me as a city where cost of living was very, very high pre-COVID. And it also happens to be the seat of, you know, this one industry, tech, that will probably virtualize the first and the fastest. how do you think about that? Do you think there'll be a dispersion in the outcomes of these cities?
1: Yeah, I think I'll take it a step further and say, I think there's going to be knowledge workers, tech workers are clearly dispersing yeah. places yeah. like Austin, Texas are very appealing Denver. And that's why we've talked to our investors on the calls about broadening our own footprint to follow those people. But you want to be careful where you follow them too, because if it's a place where housing owned housing is too inexpensive, you may not have that renter very long anyway. And it may, Regardless of the demand, you may not like your economic outcome as a landlord. It'll be, as I said before, like it was for us in Phoenix, where you just had a lot of churn. You just had a lot of people that were good residents, but they just weren't good residents for very long because they bought very quickly.
0: And that's the driver. It's, it's, it's affordability of buying a home that pushes you out of multifamily.
1: Often, yes. But the big difference with millennials has been not only have they made this lifestyle choice, really enormous impact. When Sam Zell and I talk about this, he emphasizes all the time, just our chairman, about getting married later, having fewer children, and just, we all know that was really important, but it was, it it matters for everything in the apartment business. So millennials are doing everything 10 years later. That meant that they were my residents and will be my residents, our company's residents, longer. So that's hugely beneficial. The other thing the millennials don't have those down payments because they have student loans and other. So we talk about a lot of our residents as having terrific income statements and tougher balance sheets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe to the other side of the argument, maybe they go to Phoenix and they have to rent because they, for a while, they need to save up that down payment because they haven't been all that thrifty and they've got a lot of debt and, you know, they need to work through that. So I think you're going to see some knowledge worker dispersion of these older millennials. The real interesting group is this Gen Z, the group that's going to start to graduate from college. I have a daughter uh, who was born in 2000. It was just the very beginning of that group. And what are their preferences? And we're doing some work to try and begin to guess at that. Because again, they're too young to have expressed clear preferences, but are they like their older brothers and sisters where they want that urban lifestyle? Has the pandemic affect their thought process? And I think that's a really interesting line of inquiry. And, you know, we're kicking that around.
0: That's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious, are there any kind of formative thoughts or formative theses around what? how is Gen Z different than I guess my generation, the millennial generation? Like how? what is the distinction in behaviors and especially around real estate?
1: Yeah, the one analogy I'm gonna draw with the permission of my alma mater, the University of Michigan, they I'm on a board there where they talk a lot because they're, for them, Gen Z is their current customer, right? They're appealing to that demographic now and they contrasted it with how they appealed 10 or 15 years ago to the generation that was, was ahead. And these are true tech natives, right? They really started with the internet. They don't know a world without it. So they're much more comfortable in that regard. They're less comfortable interacting directly, like considerably less comfortable interacting directly than millennials and millennials are less comfortable than my generation. So there's a, you know, you communicate with them differently. They really, I would have been honored to have received a phone call when I was 18 years old from anyone important at a university I wanted to go to. They wouldn't know what to do if their telephone rang. Okay, so, you know, it's a different mode of communication with them and it's a different thought process. There's more activities, but they participate less. They mm-hmm. feel enormous stress. When I went to college again, I'm dating myself. But when I started school in 84, it was less than a thousand dollars a semester to go to the university of Michigan in state. Now it's exponentially more expensive. So when it was a thousand bucks, my opportunity cost of screwing up a little wasn't very high, but these kids are very career motivated at these schools. They're very money motivated. And I don't think we should be surprised when they're paying $30,000 or their parents are a semester to get them through school, so these kids are probably more anxious, the Gen Zs than the Millennials were. They're certainly even more technologically native and interested. They're probably they're very social, but through the networks, not through the in person. And they talk a lot about how to reach those people in the channels. And I just try to think about what does that mean about what their housing preferences are. And I can't I can't figure that out. And we're going to have to get someone smarter to, to do that. But uh, again, they're so young, it's hard to know. I have a, I have kids in that age group in my home, and you know I'm always asking them. I'm asking their friends, and they're to the point where they consider me a semi-stalker. I think if I keep asking, so I, I sort of stopped. But I'm like, well, you're, where do you think you'll go when you when you get that out of school? Two years to go. Don't I don't know. I, I but uh, that's a big question for us in the apartment business: is where does that next wave go, and where do they want to be?
0: Yeah, and and it must be interesting even to track those waves of like where people that are attracted to a given industry end up migrating right immediately post-school. Like when I graduated Princeton, probably two thirds of my class all went to New York City. It was just different jobs, but there were so many companies like McKinsey or Goldman Sachs that were employing so many of them that it was almost like grad school. It was almost like grad school moved to, to New York. And I don't see that being fundamentally different amongst the Gen Zs. I'm curious, do you see that different? Like the cities represent that draw, right? Yeah.
1: So far not. I'm lucky enough to do these speaking events once in a while at universities. And I was was at Wharton, I was at Michigan, I've been at a few other schools. And what I get to do at the end is ask the exact question you do. Where is everyone going? By a show of hands. Yeah. And, and if you're in the Midwest, they're also going to Chicago, which I love is my hometown, but not one of our markets. But they again, predominantly they're going If they're at East Coast, they're big New York draw, big Boston, maybe some D.C. Then a few are going home, wherever home is. You know, they've decided they've always liked Cincinnati. They're going to go back for at least now or something. But that's a small group. I wonder if this has changed anything. My sense is it hasn't. Young people balance safety and, I think, and entertainment and engagement differently than 54-year-olds do. I think it's just different. And as you go through the age continuum, so I think a 23 year old looks at the pandemic, hopefully not jaded, not saying it can't hurt me. They, hopefully they know better, but they also don't want to just sit in the house all day. They, I I spent my whole twenties trying to less socially distance myself with people, be around people my age. And I think they still want that. They still want to engage. And so I think the cities are gonna be a big draw still. It's a matter of which cities, but I think the cities are gonna be a big draw for, for that age group.
0: I totally agree. And l- the last thing I wanted to ask you about is just how charged rental real estate politics kind of has become, right? And the, what you read about, obviously, about cities, right? And kind of the unrest that's happening in cities, but also just eviction laws um, and, and how that's changing city by city. Um, how do you think about that long-term, right? It's a big change versus six months ago. Do you think this is this kind of the environment we're seeing today persists? And, and how do you think about, you know, reacting to that going forward?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think if you're a leader in housing, you have to acknowledge there is an affordable housing crisis. There are certainly a lot of people that can't readily afford housing or have substandard housing in the United States. Then you have to ask yourself how that gets fixed. And this is where that policy making advocacy that the industry does, and I do and others do uh, in the industry, you know, a lot of stuff can be improved by government, public private partnerships, and by changes in regulatory standards. So places like Minneapolis, they got rid of single family or or permitted more permissive multi-unit dwellings in areas that were single family only zoned, that's a really smart thing to do, right? You, you wanna protest or be upset that there isn't affordable housing, the way to correct that in desirable places like the Bay Area is to build more housing. And that's the answer. It isn't. There isn't any other answer. Like you don't, if you want more potatoes, you don't limit the amount of acreage planted for potatoes. And you, you, you push that. So, What we make as a message, or we try to get across as a message is, listen, we need to work together to figure out a way to build more affordable housing. And I'll use my part of the industry, the upper end, because we're in the upper middle income bracket, our residents are from uh, the information I gave you earlier. There's plenty of supply. I mean, we, we fight supply. So where the private market is allowed to build and is incentivized to build, they will solve that problem. There's plenty of units being delivered. So how do we as a group, the government and the private sector work together to make sure that not just the person who is the consultant, the tech engineer, but the folks that are your public safety workers, your teachers can also live in the same neighborhood? Because that's what makes cities vibrant. It isn't just the upper 10%. it's yeah. everybody. And there's, there's cities doing that. Again, places like Minneapolis, there's these good conversations. Some of this is definitely the regulatory stuff. So to talk about what happened the last six months. The beginning of the pandemic, the landlords all got together even before the eviction moratorium. And under the, I think, excellent leadership of the National Multi-Housing Council, our industry association, we put out a press release, EQR put it in our own, we did a separate release on, we're going to follow the following rules. We're not going to evict anyone. We're not going to raise rent. We did all these things because you just couldn't evict people March 30th. That was wrong, okay? There was going to be a financial cost, but we just couldn't do that. Well, then the government started to put in these moratoriums, which that was fine because it was an emergency. The problem we now have is that the moratorium has become part of solving the affordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. This thought process that we're never going to pay rent again, or we're not going to pay. I mean, EQR pays $400 million a year in property taxes. That supports those public safety workers in the cities. If I can't get paid my rent, I can't pay that. I can't keep 3,000 employees employed. I mean, it's really a thoughtless, this next step is very thoughtless, I think. Right. Sort of initial moratoriums were very justified, but now you're getting to the point where it's either a political stunt or it's done out of some desperation with no long-term plan. What it is the sounds like
0: it's being conflated with with the housing shortage and, and the affordability challenges in cities.
1: They're taking, it's, I would argue some, not all, because they're very well-meaning or they have different issues in their particular city. But, you know, there are folks that are clearly taking advantage of the pandemic, trying to, you know, hurt landlords, hurt private ownership of residential real estate. And that, I I mean, that's wrong. There's a different argument to add there, but pretending that solves the current problem. Those are two different. Conflate is an excellent descriptor because that's exactly what these folks are doing. And we hope to have a more productive conversation. Like, okay, so some folks can't pay, some people can, let's sort that out, let's figure, and then how do we move forward so that I can keep paying my mortgage as a landlord? So I can pay my rent, my, uh, my uh, employees, my real estate taxes. So we need to have like a better, calmer discussion about how you really do this instead of pretending by magic, no one pays rent anymore and the entire residential industry doesn't collapse. You know, when that happens, you'll have poorly maintained buildings, all the stuff that New York had in the 70s. I mean, it isn't private housing that gets cited. It's often public housing projects that are the least well run. So, you know, Brandon, I think think there's a huge opportunity here. I think thinking of it as a problem is the wrong way to approach it because private guys love building. There's lots of developers and they do it. It's just the government has to help them get out of the way, maybe open up some public land and work something out here, we can move forward, but I uh, yeah. will
0: one, one would hope that, you know, th- this crisis we've all been through and kind of the, the downstream impacts on real estate in particular, just will create a new opportunity, right, for the private sector, private real estate owners to collaborate with the public sector in a way that they're not talking past each other. And I think the danger, right, is that issues get thrown together that really were issues that predated COVID and predated this crisis um, and issues that are very expedient that we're dealing with right now. Um, and it seems like that's so hard to do, but it does seem like, you know, you'd hope cooler heads and, you know, the the well-intentioned private sector advocates and the public sector should work together like that. Um, well, Mark, this has been awesome. I've, I've really appreciated this, this whole conversation. So, Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and would love to uh, hear more as this unfolds. And we've valued the partnership with EQR so much. Uh, So it's a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me on. And again, we appreciate working with Fifth Wall.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.